Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross along with Luke Doris. This is podcast number three of Hurricane Season 2021 and podcast number 59 in our series. Luke, uh, things are cranking up a little bit in the tropics again this June. They buzzed a little bit. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they certainly have. Not like last year, but we're talking a little bit. We have things to talk about. All right. Today, we're going to talk with Dr. Amy Clement, a professor in the Department of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science. And she's also on the City of Miami's Climate Resilience Committee. Amy's done some groundbreaking work on El Nino and the so-called AMO, which is the apparent cyclical changes in the Atlantic that have uh, been thought to affect hurricane activity. She studies how these things might change or are changing in a warmer world, and also how Miami and South Florida can adapt to sea level rise and changing climate in general. We'll understand a lot more about a lot of things uh, and uh, hurricanes and the oceans and everything to do with uh, both of those, how they interact after we talk to Amy. She's really an amazingly accomplished scientist uh, at UM. We're recording this podcast on Tuesday, June 15th, 2021. If you're listening at some point in the future for the latest, you've got to tune in to Channel 10, of course, in South Florida or Local10.com, where we stream all of the Local 10 newscasts, which are on most of the day now. And the Hurricane Tracker app, of course, will keep you up to date on tropical weather or the Local 10 Weather Authority app, of course, for any time for weather information wherever you are. And check out Local10.com to sign up for the newsletter called From Brian Norcross. I write it most mornings, certainly every morning when there's something of interest. I'll keep you up to date on what's going on in the tropics, and it'll get emailed directly to you. If you want this thing emailed to you, what you do is you go on Local10.com slash weather, and uh, uh, slash hurricane, sorry, local10.com slash hurricane, and then kind of scroll down a little bit. You'll see a, a, a box to put in your email address, and you'll get then the email uh, most every morning during hurricane season. So, okay, Luke, we have uh, a tropical storm, Bill, still going, although it's going to die out pretty soon offshore as the remnants head toward Newfoundland. But this disturbance uh, in the Gulf, has actually got some rotation, although it's right along uh, the coast. Uh, I mean, this looks like it could be a significant, a reasonably significant event. Again, on the northern Gulf Coast, it's like 2021 is picking up where 2020 left off. Not what we want to see. I mean, they paid their dues last year. But what we have is this broad area of rotation. Um, nothing at all wrapped up right now. But thunderstorms that are kind of loosely rotating around this broad circulation. And right now it's pinned in the Southern Gulf of Mexico, the Bay of Campeche. And it's gonna stay there, it looks like, until the end of the week. Um, and also at the end of the week, there's this little gap that will allow this to move north. And as it does, conditions might become more favorable. The hostile upper level winds back off a bit and we have time, you know, over the Gulf is warm, of course, plenty warm, everything's there that we could see a depression form. Doesn't look like it'll be a very strong system looks like those hostile upper level winds will likely keep it in check, but it's the rain. The rain on top of an area that has seen a ton of rain lately, there's the problem, you know, in the Gulf states, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, something like that, probably by this weekend. Is that about right? Yeah, and high pressure is building in. So as the high pressure builds in over Florida, actually, which should help improve our weather here by the weekend, 
that combined with the low pressure and the lowering pressure of that system, it's going to make pretty strong winds on the east side. Again, not nobody's expecting a hurricane out of it, but uh, I see some of the models have winds in the 50, 60 mile an hour range in some narrow band on the east side related to the pressure difference between the big high over the Atlantic and, and uh, the uh, low pressure of the system. And you, uh, you know, we've been talking about the dust out in the Atlantic. The high pressure is going to kind of drive the dust over here. When you were making the local forecast here today, you were counting on that dust, what, suppressing the thunderstorms around the week? Later this week. And I, you know, Brian, I think we had some today mm-hmm. even because uh, on Monday it was rain all day. We had strong storms in the morning. Today, it did what dust likes to do, which is the energy of the atmosphere needs to build a little bit. The morning was dry and sunny, and the dust will add a cap in the atmosphere, and it takes time, and it takes the heating of the day and the sea breezes to collide to punch through that little cap. And the skies did look milky and hazy through the tower cam. So I think we had some today. But boy, when they went, they went. We had flash flooding. We had severe thunderstorms. Uh, but not enough dust. It was just a sprinkling, but not enough dust to uh, to stop the storms. Later on this week, we get a pattern shift, uh, you know, potential tropical depression or maybe Claudette, whatever that thing is to our west in the Gulf of Mexico. That's wrapping more of the moisture to it. And we get a big surge of dust that comes in. Looks like we'll be drying things out here locally and into Father's Day weekend. Yeah, I looked at a sounding for Miami where we're looking at uh, vertically in the atmosphere on how moist the atmosphere is at what levels. And there is a dry level uh, Mm -hmm. at about the level that you would expect the Saharan dust to be at in that uh, 8 to 12,000 foot level somewhere up in there, something below 500 millibars, uh, maybe 600 or 700 millibars, something like that. So I suspect there was enough dust to slow things down, but not enough dust to stop it stop the storms from developing and probably enough just enough dust to make the storms extra strong yeah i think i hear a few claps of thunder back there behind you yes it's uh, it's storming outside (laughs) here right now Uh, no doubt about that all right well we'll keep an eye on the system in the gulf and we feel for the folks in uh, louisiana along the gulf coast because boy the rivers are running high there and uh, they really don't need a lot uh, more rain All right, uh, let's go ahead and bring in uh, Dr. Amy Clement from the University of Miami, who's done extensive research on cycles and systems in the Atlantic and the Pacific. I mean, there's all kind of stuff that meteorologists are going to love about our conversation with Amy. Plus, she's involved in climate mitigation and planning here in Miami. Hi, Amy. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, Brian. Hi, Luke. Hello. So there are so many things uh, to talk to you about. It's hard uh, to know where to start. Well, why don't we start with South Florida and our side of the world first, which really means the Atlantic as opposed to uh, all the work you've done in the Pacific, which I know is a little bit out of order in terms of your research. But first, what brought you to Miami and to Rasmus and the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science? Well, that's a simple answer. Um, my husband brought me here. He is a Miami native. He wasn't born here, but grew up here. And uh, we met in New York. And he he uh, kept hinting about what a great place Miami was to live. And came down to visit uh, plenty of you know, winter weekends. And uh, I was sold. 
Um, I actually met some faculty from Rasmus at a conference at the American Meteorological Society in Dallas. Um, and they said, oh, we have a job opening. Maybe you want to think about applying. And so I did, and here we are. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. So are you an ocean person or an atmosphere person or both? would you say? Yeah, that's a good question. I get asked that a lot. I actually started out as an oceanographer. Um, I started, uh, well, I started out as a physicist. I studied physics in college at Columbia, and I got really interested in the research that people were doing at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. So I did some research there as an undergrad. I took some really influential classes um, about the history of the planet and about oceanography from some faculty there and also got really um, interested in the question about climate change at the time we were calling it global warming. And, uh, and I got um, interested in the topic as an application of physics and my, and my physics background. And so I started out studying oceanography, but very quickly, um, because I was interested in the global scale problem, I very quickly got led into looking at the connection between the ocean and the atmosphere and then I've spent a lot of time looking at um, really both, actually, mm -hmm. um, ocean and atmosphere. Well, speaking more to the ocean side, uh, the Gulf Stream, you know, it's a major, super important factor here in South Florida, maybe the most important factor in our local climate because it's literally right there. I mean, it's right offshore. Then it veers away from the Florida coast around Palm Beach. Tell us about the Gulf Stream. Uh, what is it? Why is it there? Okay, so the Gulf Stream is there because, um, well, there's two factors that drive the strength of the Gulf Stream. One is the local winds, which are out in the Atlantic, kind of stirring the ocean in the same way. So we have the winds that drive a, a current on the western side of the Atlantic Basin. Um, and then there's another component to the ocean, up to the Gulf Stream, which is comes from what we call an overturning circulation. So uh, water flows into the North Atlantic from the South Atlantic at the surface. It travels all the way up through the Gulf Stream, up into the North Atlantic to the North Atlantic Drift. And actually there, the warm salty water loses heat and sinks and um, then gets exported at depth. So there's a part of the Gulf Stream that's due to that overturning. And there's a part that's due to just the wind stirring at the, at the surface. So both yeah. of those things control the, long, the strength of the Gulf Stream. As I understand it, you've done some work uh, with the Gulf Stream and how it pertained to Europe. It was thought for a long time that the Gulf Stream warmed Europe, but you basically have proven that's not true. Is that right? Hmm. Okay, so we did some work where we showed that, and I was an author among many authors on this on this paper, and some of it was in my PhD thesis, where um, if you were to completely turn off the Gulf Stream, which we did in climate model experiments. We do that kind of crazy thing. That's what, that's my business. Um, turn off the Gulf Stream. What happens to Northern Europe? Well, the whole Northern Hemisphere gets colder. The whole mid-latitude Northern Hemisphere gets colder. So there is a contribution of ocean heat transport um, to to the climate of all at all longitudes in the um, in the set, sort of like mid-latitude belt. But the question that we were after was how, why is Europe so much warmer? So you look at Europe um, and you see winter temperatures where um, 
where they're fairly mild compared to the same latitude, latitude in North America, either on the West Coast or on the East Coast. And so when we turned the Gulf Stream off in those crazy experiments, what we found was that um, Europe was still warmer, even though the whole Northern Hemisphere was colder, Europe was still warmer than different parts of North America. And the reason for that was actually had to do with the Rocky Mountains. So you guys will appreciate this as meteorologists, um, that when westerly winds flow and hit the North, hit the Rocky Mountains, they actually get diverted north, and then they rebound and come south. And so what ends up happening is that winds coming over, westerly winds coming and hitting Europe are actually coming from a more southerly latitude. So they're bringing warm air over, over Europe. And the same thing does not exist in North America or, or Asia as well. So, so what we found was that the Gulf Stream was not the reason that Europe was so much warmer than other latitudes, um, other sorry, other longitudes at that same latitude. So, sorry, so the, the air gets diverted essentially is what you're what you're saying by the by the Rockies sticking up into the flow. Exactly. So when we take out the Rockies, which we can also do in climate models, we find that Europe is just as cold as all other as all other locations. So. Um, so it's another, that's, that's how we use, a lot of how we use climate models in, in my group and um, in a couple of different labs around the U.S. that uh, we, we tinker with the land and the uh, ocean in order to see what happens when you do these thought experiments. Well, you're creating Hollywood movies. That's basically the day after tomorrow, right? It's going to be fun monkey around with these models and see what comes out on the other side. Exactly. So I, I have a, actually a, another question about the Gulf Stream, but before we do that, you know, on this podcast, we talk to a lot of meteorologists and, and we deal with weather models. All of, all of the, that's what we do anymore, right? That's the life of a, a meteorologist. So for the audience of the podcast, everybody's familiar with weather models and the uh, American GFS, the European, the UK MET, the Canadian, and so forth and so on and even ensembles where either you average a bunch of models or you look at multiple runs of a single model, all possibilities. But climate models are, are sort of a different animal to some degree. How are climate models and weather models different? Because in you know, weather models, and I know you've heard this forever, you know, we don't really believe a whole lot of what they say much beyond seven days in the future or something like that. But, but in climate modeling, you're doing a variety of things, including trying to extend farther into the future and imagine what's going to happen. So can you describe how the, the, these, they are the same and how they're different? Yeah, sure. I, that's a really great way of teeing up the question because um, we get this a lot in um, it, people that are, let's say, skeptical about how do we know what's going to happen to the climate system 50 years from now if we can't predict the weather, you know, more than a week from now. Right. And so the answer has two parts. One is we're not trying to predict the exact weather of 50 years from now. We're trying to predict the average conditions. So we can't say on a certain day 50 years from now what the weather will be, but we can sort of tell you what to expect in terms of both the weather um, and the overall climate. You mean generally um, speaking, right? It's going to be warmer, it's going to be wetter, it's going to be 
different distribution of, of uh, the weather, for example. Right, and you can even go so far as to say, how will the characteristics of storms be different? So for example, will hurricanes have more rainfall associated with them? We can't tell you where they will occur, you know, where, where they'll make landfall, how many there will be, but we can tell you what the overall characteristics of those storms will be. And then you'd say, well, how do you do that? And then that's where the second part of the difference between climate and weather models are, where weather models we use, we basically take everything we know about today's atmosphere, today meaning like right now, mm -hmm. um, today's atmosphere, today's oceans, today's land surface, and then we run the weather model and we say, given what we know is happening today, we can predict what will happen you know, a few days out, maybe a week, maybe two. What happens in climate models is we kind of forget about that whole initial condition. You know, what is, what is happening actually today is not important. What is important is that the composition of the atmosphere is different 50 years from now. That can be due to greenhouse gases, that can be due to um, what we call aerosols, which are particulate in the atmosphere that either come from human activity, like uh, coal burning or, um, or biomass burning, or they can come from natural processes like erosion that puts dust up into the atmosphere. We all know about Saharan dust here in Florida. And it can also come from volcanoes, which put a lot of particulate into the atmosphere. So knowing something about um, what the composition of the atmosphere in terms of the gases and the particulate particles, that tells us what to expect some, you know, the average conditions of what to expect uh, 50, 100 years out. So you essentially can force the atmosphere to have more of something, right? Exactly. And, and we use, like I mentioned, we use climate models to do these experiments. So they'll, they'll do experiments based on, you know, what do we think um, the composition of the atmosphere will be like if we do, you know, draw down CO2 emissions, if we ramp them up, um, mm -hmm. so we can do these different scenarios. And that's what, that, those are the kind of, we call them projections. We don't call them predictions it's mm -hmm. different like you guys do predictions we do projections yeah that's, that's on the terminology but that's what we say yeah that's a great explanation so i remember back to the the gulf stream i remember years ago dr bill gray the famous hurricane season forecaster uh, talking about the amount of water that was moving north in the Gulf Stream. The unit of measure was a sferdra, right? Uh, I, a million cubic meters per second, which I never heard of before. Uh, one, uh, Amazon, one Amazon is a sferdra, basically. Is that right? Oh, okay. Yeah. I, 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 all right, this is out of my range of knowledge. But in any case, the important thing for Bill was the amount of transport in the Gulf Stream of water, uh, it was related to the uh, thermohaline circulation, this overturning circulation you talked about, the main conveyor belt of, of circulation that goes all around uh, the earth on the surface and then, then it sinks down. And the point was that the uh, amount of water moving north would increase and decrease in some or other variety of oscillation. Now we're talking about, now we're going back 20, 30 years of, of when he was talking about this, right? 30 years, I, I guess, at least. And it, this would cycle, and that would affect the temperature of the Atlantic on some kind of corresponding cycle, and that would affect the number of hurricanes that were generated 
in the Atlantic, and we would call that the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation because the whole system is oscillating. So um, that was what <laughs> that was where I learned about this whole idea of the AMO uh, back 30 years ago or so. Uh, and but but you've done a lot of work on that. So so tell me what of what he thought and we thought 30 years ago is different than what we know now and what do we know now about this oscillating nature apparent oscillating nature of the number of hurricanes uh, in a hurricane season okay well this has a long answer but i'll try to make it mm -hmm. i can give you the short version first and then we can dive into the weeds okay. um so what i like how you call it an apparent oscillation because what our research has shown, and just really in the last couple of years, and this was a bit of a like mind-boggling to me, um, because it wasn't really how I looked at the climate system. But um, what we've shown is that these ups and downs um, that you call you know, the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation are actually driven by humans. Um, so it's not this natural oscillation that involves the ocean, you know, speeding up, ocean circulation speeding up or slowing down, but it actually just comes directly from the fact that in the post-World War II period, there was a rapid uptick in um, coal burning and greenhouse gas emissions. But those two things actually kind of offset each other, and the coal burning that produced um, what, what we call aerosols or particulate in the atmosphere actually drove the temperatures of the North Atlantic down. And they drove it, them down, you know, they, it was actually colder in the North Atlantic compared to the previous year, period. And this would be, let's say, in the 50s and 60s. And people were actually talking about the next ice age coming because they didn't understand what was the driver of this. They thought this was, you know, this was the, the beginning of the next ice age. So temperatures go down. Yes, I remember the Time magazine or something like that with, with yeah, the Ice exactly. Age on the cover, right? Exactly. Yeah. So um, what we've learned since then is that, well, and that some really important things happened, like the Clean Air Act happened in 1979, and then it's European in the U.S. and the Europeans had similar kind of um, air, um, similar legislation, which was meant to improve air quality. But what it actually also did was. It, um, it resulted in much less, um, what we, um, much less aerosols going into the atmosphere. So then you took this cooling effect out, and and temperatures rapidly come up. So that explains this oscillation of like sort of warm temperatures in the Atlantic driving down after in the post World War II industrialization, and then coming back up post 1980 and a little bit later. Now that's not the only thing there's also volcanic activity which was much higher in the um in the sort of 60s 50s and 60s or a couple of big volcanoes and actually you can go back even further in time you know bill gray has worked on this and others as well and if you look at the times when the north atlantic is cool it's actually cool at the same time that big volcanic eruptions mm -hmm. tambora and, and uh, like this Krakatoa, right yeah and so what we've been able to tell is that these um, modern oscillations, um, which are caused mostly by humans, um, also if you look back further in time, they're not really oscillations at all. They're just uh, the, the temperature of the North Atlantic responding to the composition of the atmosphere. 
So last week here on the podcast, Dr. Phil Klotzbach, who was Dr. Bill Gray's uh, protege and is uh, part of the team now that makes the Colorado State seasonal forecast, as you probably know, uh, I asked him the same question. And uh, he had, a, a, you know, because he's the stats guy, right? Whenever I want to know something about hurricane stats, it's, uh, I go to Phil. And uh, what he brought up, which is really, I think, an interesting point, is, you know, between 1994 and 1995, it wasn't just that, that we started having more hurricanes. We instantly started having more hurricanes. You know, it really felt like a switch was thrown. It also happened the opposite direction between 69 and 70. It just felt like suddenly we went from having a lot of storms to having no storms. So, you know, he wrote, not, not disputing the idea of the, you know, aerosols and, and so forth, but does that give you pause at all to wonder that maybe there is another layer going on? Because it's hard, I mean, just intuitively, not being the researcher that you are, but intuitively, you would think that the effect of less air pollution would be a gradual process, right, as opposed to a thresholdy kind of process. Mm -hmm. Uh, where there's something to do with the ocean might very well be, okay, it's, we're at a threshold now, so it's going to behave uh, differently. Anyway, I'm interested in your thoughts. I think you're right at the cutting edge of the research questions, Brian. I, <laughs> we, we um, you know, it took really, I would say it's still a work in progress, um, a lot to, to push the community to get away from thinking about that the ocean is the only driver of things happening on this time scale. And I, I would say I've been engaged in very intense scientific debates in the last five years on this topic. Um, so we've been sort of pushing in that direction, not for any agenda, it just, um, you know, there's a lot you can explain with these, um, these human-caused cycles. Um, so we need to know what that is, but that also doesn't mean that's the only thing happening. So you do have lots of internal variability. As you know from looking at hurricanes, you can make a prediction about a season, but then random atmospheric events can lead to the big one or a very active season because you know the waves just happen to line up with the subtropical high and waves that, um, that lead to hurricane development just through randomness. Right. So I would say we can't, um, you know, I, I'm very intrigued by, by that comment by Phil and yourself about, about you know, a, a rapid intensification or a rapid decline. Um, we have to kind of get, have pause and say, um, you know, how well can we, how, how well can we say that every time the Atlantic warms, there's an uptick in hurricanes just because, a, let's say a rapid uptick because there is this randomness that's mm -hmm. always going to be there. And it could have been that the rising temperatures happen to coincide with random conditions that made for active season. So we, we can't ignore the sort of unpredictable randomness of the atmosphere. That's always going to be happening. We can't ignore the ocean because it does move heat around. Um, and the best example of this is El Nino. So we know that, and El Nino is like, the ocean circulation is critical to El Nino. We shut down up equatorial upwelling, East Pacific warms, and that impacts the vertical wind shear um, through the atmosphere on the Atlantic. So um, we can't ignore that either. And then 
I personally think it's an open question about what is it about this ocean circulation within the Atlantic? What is that piece that's doing it? One of the things you note in 94, 95 is there was a rapid warming of the Atlantic. Um, it does coincide with drawing down of anthropogenic aerosols still. And, and meanwhile, greenhouse gases are going up very rapidly. So those two things can give you a rapid warming in that way. Um, there's also a major volcanic event that happened in 1991. Mount Pinatubo is actually when I started my graduate degree. Um, and that, um, that caused a momentary cooling that was followed by also a rapid warming because of the drawdown of volcanic aerosols just through natural processes. So that's to say, when I read, you know, we are still writing proposals and papers and trying to understand what are the contributions of all of these different parts of the system. And it kind of reveals, you know, as a climate scientist, it's a, it's a really hard job to try to quantify all these things and put, put all the pieces together. With ultimately, I'm sure if you're not going to get to the, I'm sure you'll get to this is like what's going to happen in the future, right? So we want to be able to understand the past and all, what are all the important controls in order to predict what will happen in the future. Yeah, speaking of you just mentioned, you know, the greenhouse gases, I believe it was this past May that we set the record at Mauna Loa Observatory for the parts per million greenhouse gases. I think that for the first time went past 420. Um, right. Just remarkable. So that's something that just recently popped up. And you were talking about the future, Amy. And essentially, you know, if the AMO isn't real or if it's, you know, not essentially what we thought it had been, and this has been human induced, and now we're in this maybe semi permanent state of an increased insulation and warming of the oceans, and the Gulf Stream is no longer going to be, you know, changing like it would have if the AMO were to come in. What does this mean for the Atlantic and the hurricanes is what I'm trying to pin down because, you know, it was about the next 10 years or so that some of us that were hoping for the Atlantic hurricane activity to return to the lulls that it had in the 70s and 80s. We might be disappointed, is that right? I would say, um, I get this question all the time um, and I, I usually, my short answer, I give you a short and a long answer or longer answer. Uh, the short answer is I don't think there's a reason to think that we will return to the quiet conditions of the, um, let's call it the pre-1995 period. And that will, will go back, let's say, to 1960 to 95. Those are there's a composition of atmosphere with aerosols and greenhouse gases that's not going to be reproduced. We're not going to start injecting um, air, uh, particulate into the atmosphere. We know it's bad for human health and ecosystems. We're not doing that. Greenhouse gases are going to continue going up um, and at least for the foreseeable future. And even if we are successful in drawing them down, we still have some baked in warming because the the ocean has a thermal inertia that would keep it warm. So um, what I usually say is I, I don't think there's a reason to, to think that we'll return to those conditions. At least not, I mean, it could happen for a year, but for a 10 year or 20 year period, that won't, that won't, won't be reproduced. 
Um, and on top of that, we know um, that a warmer atmosphere has more water vapor in it. And we know that that produces, for even the same strength hurricane, it produces more rainfall. So we know to expect storms, whether there's more or less of them, to bring more rainfall. And we've seen that playing out. We also know to expect that sea levels are higher. So storm surges associated with any hurricane are going to be that much more impactful because they're on top of a higher sea level. And so what I, you know, I, I, do, I do think that it's a mistake to think that we could just hold out and we'll, you know, end up with a quiet period again. Because even if we're, even if we're wrong about the, the AMO, um, even if we're, um, and, and there is this cyclicity that comes back. I mean, science, you can always be wrong. That's the nature of science. It's always falsifiable. If it weren't, it wouldn't be science. Um, and, uh, and even if those things did happen, we would still, we have sea levels going up and we have a warming atmosphere and those will bring more impactful hurricanes. And I think that's a really important way of thinking about things. That um, that we you know we shouldn't get distracted by the idea that um, I, you didn't mention this yet, but I, you're probably thinking this is that um, in the long term future um, that a lot of there's a lot of climate modeling evidence to suggest that the overturning circulation in the ocean will slow down in a potentially very dramatic way. Um, so you know it's possible that those um, you know. That, that could lead to a cooling in the North Atlantic, um, not part of a natural cycle, but actually also caused by humans. So there's that, but it would be a mistake to think, to expect, to wait around for that to happen and not prepare for more impactful hurricanes between now and then. Yeah, because of the freshening of the water in the North Atlantic, uh, fundamentally, right? So uh, following up with that idea on the surface, so to speak, you you think that a warmer Atlantic Ocean and a warmer climate uh, would produce maybe more and stronger hurricanes. We've you know been taught that that the warmer the ocean is, the more hurricanes that we're we're going to get. The stronger the hurricanes will be, and we see that kind of on a year in year out basis on average. But there is a question, right? What's going to happen in the atmosphere over the ocean in a warmer client. So what is that issue and and why is that still an open question? Okay, well I have, um, it's really exciting to me because I had an undergraduate student who um, did a thesis on this and then went on, she's just gone on to grad school at University of Colorado in Boulder, very proud. Um, and she has just, uh, the paper is still in the in process, but um, She's been looking at, um, so we have these cycles in surface temperature that you've mentioned, but one of the things that the early work on the AMO showed, and this was colleagues of mine across the street at NOAA um, AOML, um, Atlantic Ocean Meteorological Laboratory, and, um, and I think maybe Bill Gray was involved in some of this work as well, um, is that it's not just the up and down of the temperature, but the wind shear is also right. correlated. So that times when, so in this quiet period uh, of the, let's call it the mid 20th century, just for simplicity, I mean, it's like mid to late 20th century. Not only was the Atlantic Ocean a bit cooler, the wind shear was also higher. 
And both of those things are, as you know, um, you know, they are inhibit the development of hurricanes. So what the student showed was that um, that again, human activities and our impact on the atmosphere composition could also produce correlated changes in surface temperature and wind shear. So that that mid-century uh, quiet period um, is also wasn't wasn't just due to the human influence on the on the surface of the ocean. It was also due to the human influence on the atmospheric circulation. Um, and again, you know, you are guys are right at the cutting edge. <laughs> so these are not settled issues. And as I mentioned, the paper is still in review. So um, who knows what will happen? But um, it's another piece of the puzzle that says that um, there is a really important role, um, more important than I would have ever expected, but in, in humans in driving these ups and downs in hurricanes. Of course, there is a reality that, you know, if uh, nothing changed with hurricanes and the hurricanes of the past came back and started hitting Florida like they did in the middle of the 20th century, people would think the world was coming to an end. We don't need the hurricanes to really change to be a, a much worse problem. They just would have to come back, you know, to reality, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's just true. Luke? Yeah. Uh, like the late 40s, right, Brian? I mean, right. I'm reading right now about the 47 Fort Lauderdale hurricane. I'm at Fort Lauderdale. So, uh, I think we had like 13 storms and or 12 storms in 10 years, something mm -hmm. crazy. But anyway, a key factor, Amy, that we know that affects the number of hurricanes in any season, we've talked about this a little bit, El Nino and La Nina in the Pacific. First, let, let's talk about that connection. Why, why does El Nino affect hurricanes? Well, El Nino impacts the the global atmosphere. Um, when I was a graduate student, I had I was had the really really great great opportunity to work with a brilliant person named Mark Kane, who um, made the first El Nino forecast, the first successful El Nino forecast. They published it. Um, people thought they were crazy. You can't do this, um, but they turned out to be right. Well, that <laughs> was like in the eighties, in the mid eighties, right? Eighty six. 86, yeah. okay. Um, and they, uh, he says, you know, he jokes about it sometimes and says, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, but I think they were both lucky and good. Um, but uh, so they made a successful prediction and um, um, the, I think one of the key things that people were, were working on at the time was that looking at the what we call teleconnections through the atmosphere to other parts of the globe. So you could go look at maize yields in Zimbabwe, and you could see that they go up and down with El Nino. You could go back further in time, and this is actually how the El Nino story really started, was that the British meteorological, um, uh, the, 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 the UK set up the Indian, Indian Meteorological Service, and they had some scientists there, and they were trying to predict monsoon failures. And what they showed was that when a monsoon failed, it happened to coincide with an El, El Nino event. Um, and that had, um, so that impacted India, but it also impacted Brazil. And there were these really widespread famines that coincided historically with colonialization and people starved and millions of people died. There's a fabulous book about that called Late Victorian Holocaust by Mike Davis. And he showed that there's this El Nino connection that um, in in the in these different um, colonial regions that really made people vulnerable to um, sh 
shifts in rainfall patterns that were tied to them. So people were driven by this concept of teleconnections. Um, how do these, you know, how do these regions relate to each other? And the answer is that it's through the atmosphere. So you can think of the um, El Nino as being a big, you know, associated with a big blob of um, convective activity in the atmosphere. And that heating of the atmosphere drives waves that propagate out of the Pacific. Um, and those, some of those waves, they impact, they can impact the climate of North America, of Brazil, of, the, um, of, of India, of Africa, and they also impact the atmosphere over the North Atlantic um, through these kind of, this kind of wave pattern that um, reaches the North Atlantic and drives a change in atmospheric circulation, which looks like um, you know, it, it impacts the, uh, the vertical wind shear. Um, in, in this case, El Nino is, um, is uh, good for good for um, hurricanes. <laughs> uh, good because it's because it's bad for hurricanes. Good for us. So to yes, say. exactly. Good for us. Right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for clarifying it. I know you often get. I'm in mean, conferences and people. Well, you know, in our field, we get really excited about hurricanes right. and their development. And we say good and bad in different ways. So sometimes the forecasters will be like, this is good for development, like bad, bad for us. Yes, well, when I write, I, I uh, struggle with this. The, the words like favorable and unfavorable yeah. uh, are a problem. That's why I've kind of gotten away from that and gone to hostile and supportive. F supportive for development and hostile to development, you know, kind, okay. of, okay. kind of idea. Um, so, so uh, talking about El Nino now. Now we're into territory that I'm going to make a statement and just tell me if it's just com completely wrong if I understand it uh, incorrectly. But as I understood, the, the um, some of the material that has come out and some of the papers that have come out describing hurricanes in a uh, future world is that there might be fewer because climate models were showing more El Ninos. So El Ninos create the hostile winds over the tropical, subtropical Atlantic, and therefore the idea was fewer hurricanes in the future uh, in a warmer world, but, but stronger. Because if they form, they would be forming with more heat in the ocean. But, uh, but as I understand your first paper, your first big paper, uh, you kind of show that that's not necessarily true and climate models that have insisted on more El Ninos uh, may have left out a key component. Did I get any of that uh, close oh, to right? I, I'm super impressed. You did your homework. <laughs> um, right, so two answers. One is, um, so there's El Nino events. That, um, that, that come and go, and my my reading of the current literature, scientific understanding, let's say, is that we can't really tell whether El Nino events will become more or less frequent in the future. When we do experiments with climate models, um, we get different answers. In some models, they increase, and in some models they decrease. Um, but and uh, some models, they don't change. So we can't really say what's going to happen to El Nino events. What I think you're referring to is what is the sort of overall average state of the, uh, of the Pacific. And so one of my first papers was um, on a mechanism that where we were trying to argue that um, as you warm up the planet that the 
tropical Pacific will somewhat counterintuitively shift to a more La Nina-like state. So the East Pacific will be cold as the planet is warming. And that sounds sort of strange. Um, we were met with a lot of criticism at the time um, <clears throat> because we had, done, we had done some experiments with a really simplified model. But that idea has actually um, played out not in models, but in the actual real world. So um, since about the, um, since the 1990s, well, really even further back, the, La, La, the Pacific has been trending into a La Nina-like state. Um, and <clears throat> one of the explanations, and this is what was based on part of my PhD thesis, is that as the planet warms, you are basically the um, in the in the equatorial Pacific. The water that comes up into the surface is actually much older. It comes from you know it it basically is upwelling water that's never seen the kind of greenhouse gas levels that we see. It's been isolated from the atmosphere in in the deeper ocean, and so even as you warm, you're pulling up this reservoir of cold waters that remain cold. And they keep the East Pacific cool while the rest of the Pacific is warming. They keep the part of the ocean where the upwelling is happening cool. And we called it a thermostat mechanism. So it's sort of like a, you know, it's a way of like dialing down the, the temperature even while the temperatures are increasing. So that idea, you know, the mechanism we can revealed in the 1990s, but like I said, it's kind of been playing out in the real world that it looks like the East Pacific is just not keeping pace of warming with the rest of the Pacific Ocean, which creates a La Nina-like state. So let, let me just, just to be clear for, for folks that may wonder this, why we care about the Pacific and why the Pacific is so important. It's because, am I correct, the Pacific is so big that you change the temperature over this huge area of water and that just creates, uh, if it's cool, that creates the way that the air, the air descends over the cool uh, water. If it's warm, if it's La Nina, it's warm. The air rises over the cool water, but it's because of the size of the Pacific, right, that makes this variation the Pacific drive weather all around the world as you described Brazil, India, uh, Zimbabwe, so forth. I think that's a really good way of explaining it. I mean, I, I should use that in my classes. <laughs> not, o not overly complicated, but yeah, it's, you know, a, it's a quarter of the, the surface area of the planet. So it, it's just the big driver. And, you know, we could get into fun details that we do experiments with climate models where we change the size of the Pacific Basin compared to the Atlantic. And yes, we find that when we do that, um, when we narrow the Pacific Basin, that we start to get less of an, we start to get less of these kind of oscillations happening, El Nino, mm -hmm. and we also start to get uh, less impact that uh, reaching other, you know, reaching globally. So essentially it sounds like a twofer. If we're going into a semi-permanent or a more often uh, La Nina state for the Atlantic or for the Pacific, but affecting the Atlantic, and on top of that, we're not maybe getting this AMO lull to return. It sounds supercharged to me. So, what what's kind of the bottom line in your opinion, Amy, as we look ahead with hurricanes in a warmer world and the world is as we understand it to be going? 
I mean, I think you said it perfectly. I, um, I mean, let's say, let me just put a caveat on that. This question about the La Nina-like state and whether it will turn around is still an open science question. Um, I have colleagues at, at Columbia University that just wrote a paper on, on this. They're arguing this, this La Nina-like state will persist. And um, but there are people that disagree with that, and climate models actually don't show that. So it's an, potentially an area where climate models are wrong. Um, <clears throat> but I would say that that is a completely reasonable scenario based on our understanding of the climate system. That those two things will add up to be not good for us. <laughs> Maybe good for hurricane development, but not good for those of us living in her, the paths of hurricanes. Yeah, so, so let's talk about uh, climate change and hurricanes on a very practical level. I live in Miami Beach. I live on the first street, as a matter of fact, to be raised to deal with water level rise in Biscayne Bay and how that affects the ability to drain water off the streets and, and so forth, not to mention tidal flooding. So on uh, my street, we went from a very simple gravity system, right? It would rain, the water would go in the drain, go out into Biscayne Bay, and the, the road would clear, to now we have a complex system of pumps and generators and water storage that waits until the tide goes down and then it gets pumped out and so forth. Is, is that the solution for Miami and South Florida in general? To, because obviously, you know, my neighborhood in Miami Beach is not the only neighborhood that has exactly the same uh, reality. Uh, we've essentially raised the land there. Is that what we have to do? We have to raise the land uh, in the areas threatened by sea level rise and inability to uh, drain the way they used to? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, first of all, I would say the answer is that that is one of the tools in our toolkit. And it's definitely not the only one. Um, and. Uh, if, let's just say you took the example, we just decided to go all in on pumping, and we'll do that throughout the, the city and the county. I mean, the city has a stormwater master plan that it just released, and pumping is a, a part of it, setting up new pumping stations. Um, if we did that, now, what does that mean for, um, one, what does it mean for ecosystems? We've already learned that pumping water directly into Biscayne Bay is not a good idea. Um, it has negative impacts on, you know, our, our well-being through, you know, being able to live in a, you know, in a place where there is a functioning marine ecosystem. Yeah, and Miami it, Beach is struggling with that reality. Right? Yeah, and I think that that will be an issue if we do pumping more widespread, and I'm very concerned about that. Um, <clears throat> we are also, um, if you put all your eggs in that basket, what does that mean for greenhouse gas emissions? Why are we... We're solving a greenhouse gas-driven problem with a high-energy solution. So, you know, it's sort of we're working at cross-purposes, too. So it's important not to forget that. And I think the way forward is that we look at solutions that aren't working at cross-purposes. And I'll get a bit grandiose, potentially, but the way I see things is that it's not just about solving the problem of rainwater remaining in the streets or seawater coming into the streets during even when it doesn't rain as you know that happens in, in miami through in king tide season um but we really need to be looking at it more broadly and saying what do we want miami to look like and as a resident of miami 
I also want a Miami that works for me and for the other residents of the city. So that doesn't include building, that doesn't, isn't just, uh, you know, keeping water out, but it's also creating uh, solutions that are, have benefits or we call them co-benefits, the people living here. So let's say, you know, a lot of innovative um, solutions out there involve green infrastructure. So you, um, you can retain water in areas that are green um, more effectively and allow them to filter, um, filter out the contaminants at the surface before it goes back into the Biscayne Aquifer or into Biscayne Bay or into the ocean. And um, so if we, if we look at solutions like that, they also have co-benefits of one, drawing greenhouse ga gases down, so our carbon sink, and they also have the co-benefit of being things that people want to have in their backyard, like trees and, uh, and green spaces, as opposed to giant seawalls um, and asphalt, uh, which are um, also have the negative impact of, of exacerbating urban heat ions. So I really try to, you know, I, I'm actually, I, I am on the City of Miami's Climate Resilience Committee and, and pushing um, along those lines. We also have a collaboration with, between UM and FIU and um, some of the city and county governments in order to try to push this idea of, you know, if we're going to be investing in the resilience of our city, let's do it in a way that we, that is smart, that we can learn from, that we can invest and assess our investments and how they impact this range of things and then adjust accordingly. So that may be like a bit of a bigger answer, but that's where my head is right now. Well, I know you're heavily involved in this. Tell us about the city of Miami committee that you're heading up. Are you making policy recommendations to make the city more resilient or what's the mandate? The mandate is to advise the city um, on, on these issues, and we have a range of experts on them. There, We have scientists, engineers, architects, lawyers, <coughs> uh, developers, um, and, uh, and members of the, that represent the community as, at large as well. And <coughs> so we, um, we, we try to provide you know, specific resolutions that will then be actually, we advise staff and we give staff um, feedback um, according to our expertise. And we also um, can pass resolutions that will go up to the city of, city commission level. There okay. is, a, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry, no, no, you go ahead. I cut you off, please finish. I was gonna say there's a bit of a tension here in Miami where and I, I obviously fall on one end of, of the spectrum here is that, you know, we want to do things because, you know, Miami Beach was really bold in, in, you know, pushing out some solutions that were kind of untested. And so we want to be able to do things and test them. But I also, you know, kind of like putting the brakes on some things like we want to be smart about how we, how we invest and be flexible about how we invest. And, one of the really big challenges is that these different threats that all coincide, like just let's take hurricane, we've got rainwater coming and that's being you know managed through a stormwater management system. And we have storm surge coming and that will be, you know, there are US Army Corps of Engineers is proposing um, some solutions to that with building seawalls and um, storm surge gates with mouths of the river. Um, and, but you can see, I, I just mentioned these are handled by really not only different parts of the government, different governments. So 
we've got the federal government, we've got the city government, we've got the county, we've got the state, and each of them is handling a threat in the, somewhat independently of the other threats that are coinciding in time. So in my role, and I think you know, as a scientist, it's really important to say, let's can we look at these things together? And um, you know, so on, on this tension of like, let's do stuff and uh, or let's 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 think about it before we do. I'm more on the let's think about it before we do things. But you know, ultimately, you know, ultimately, you know, we live in a democracy and we got to move forward. And there are like lots of different points of view and. Hopefully, the solutions that we get, if we can incorporate these different points of view, are the smarter ones. Well, you just mentioned the Army Corps of Engineer proposal, mm -hmm. and I read about this in the New York Times article, which you're in as well. It basically, it sounds like they want to build a series of walls 20 feet high or so in Biscayne Bay, and then maybe some in inland walls as well to combat storm surge. Um, the, the Corps says that the threat to Miami from storm surge is too great not to do this. Of course, there's a lot of pushback on this. I'm curious, what are your thoughts here? Um, is this prudent and a necessary measure to protect life and property here? Do the costs outweigh the benefits? You know, you're looking at the, the urban heat island effect that you just mentioned. And are there other solutions, you know, any of the green solutions that I heard you touch on just a moment ago? What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I'm not an expert on the, the entirety of the Corps' plan, but it, it's not just about seawalls. There is raising buildings and raising roads, and um, uh, uh, there's a, a number of different solutions. Um, I do think that there is, it's difficult to address these questions of like, how do we, how do we use green infrastructure? Although there's a lot of interest from lots of people in, in particular people in the community um, of doing that but you know how do we do that at scale I think that's an open question that hasn't um, it's really hard to get at because you know you need land you need funds to do this you need to be able to test things to see if they work because they have they're untested in our environment um, but they have enough of a potential positive impact on the community of people that are living here um, I think to be worthwhile, and so I do think that there's there's more attention needs and more focus needs to be on that in order to balance these other solutions. Um, you know, in terms of you know building seawalls, um, some of that is going to have to happen. But the question is, you know, also how does that seawall impact the people living with it, and and that you know that's not something that the Army Corps of Engineers necessarily. Um, factors in, in terms of their calculation of the cost benefit. And so there are people that are trying to push different like sorts of valuations of how to do this. I should also say that, you know, this question of fairness is that, um, you know, when we decide to raise a, raise a building, um, you know, where's the cost benefit if the building is not worth a lot, you know, maybe it's not worth the investment, but then does that end up um, creating inequities that we already have in our city? Um, and making them worse, or making existing inequities worse. Yeah, it's very complicated. I mean, the, because the solution for one part of town is different than the solution for another part of town, and, and the economics in one part of town are very different than the another part of town. It's uh, it is it's a, it's a daunting it's a daunting problem for a city that's so built out 
especially you don't really have a lot of room to experiment uh, in reality in metropolitan southeast Florida. So uh, before you go, just uh, a description of what you're focused on now. Are you focused on these these climate solutions? Is that, or do you have uh, some, you know, more pure research that uh, occupies your time? Oh, that's a great question. So I'm like, you know, I wear like five different hats throughout the day. So, like, first and foremost, I, you know, in my professional life, um, I'm an educator. So I spend a lot of time mentoring and teaching students. And, um, you know, that is these, all of these issues then feed into that. So um, that I think is, you know, that's obviously the most rewarding part of the job. That's why I'm here. Um, <clears throat> so I balance that with, um, so I have, and then I have my research, I would say, which is I'm fully, you know, I have a lab with grad students, postdocs that are working on these questions about the Atlantic, about uh, making predictions and projections about the future, using climate models, doing crazy things like taking out, you know, moving land masses around. I do that and I will always do that because I love it. Um, it doesn't necessarily, you know, it does feed into these questions, I think, which are relevant for Florida, but it can be a couple steps removed. So um, I maintain that. Um, the other thing where I've, I spend a lot of time is, you know, working through this committee. I also have a, um, I also have a great collaboration. We call it the Resilient 305 Collaborative. So it's actually um, uh, FIU and UM coming together and saying we have a, a collection of experts that are ready to work on these problems um, and to provide the expert um, uh, advice solutions um, um, in order to create you know more resilient South Florida and so I spend a lot of time I was just on a call right before this uh, the one that ran over um, it, um, trying to uh, uh, working with that group in order to um, we're, we're developing a framework where we are trying to make a what we call a resilience learning system so just what i mentioned you know you make you do something and you want to learn what were the consequences of it and so we're bringing together all of these experts in order to build that system that will be of use you know that, that will be used by not only the county staff city staff you know and potentially electeds but also the general public and say how are we doing i get this all the time people say um People saying in you know, I see these problems and nothing's happening, and um, you know we want to be able to answer the question of what's happening, how's it, and how is it, um, how is it impacting you and your life? And so we're trying to build build a, a sort of a rigorous but relatable system in order to um, to uh, to provide that information to the both the people working on the problem, the experts. And the, and the staff members, but also the general public as well. So I spend a lot of my day also um, doing that. It is uh, obviously it's a, it's a bit it's a harder problem than solving the question. Than pure science, yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Many more moving parts. The more people you involve, and the sooner you get involved in sociology, that's a lot of uh, 
fuzziness and uh, a lot of moving parts. All right. People and, are messy. Yes, people. Like it's supposed to. <laughs> people are extremely messy. Yes, you're exactly right. I mean, if forecasting the weather is hard, forecasting people is <laughs> is orders of magnitude yeah. harder. That's correct. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Amy. It's uh, been very great having you on the podcast. Great to meet you. And uh, we'll, we'll look forward to success in your endeavors in, in South Florida. It's important to all of us. Thank you so much for having me. What a super fun conversation. And I really appreciate all the digging you did through the science literature uh, on, on the work that we've done. So thank you. All right. Take care. Dr. Amy Clement from the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science. Wow, Luke, so much interesting stuff there. What stood out to you? It seems that we have a theme going from the past couple of discussions, and that is what are the what's the new normal or what's the hurricane system, you know, breakdown in the future going to look like? And we have an interesting discussion going on. I was pretty convinced after talking to Phil Klotzbach last week about, you know, he made some really solid points mm -hmm. about how the, a flip got, a switch got flipped. And it seems that there is this cycle. And then we, we talk with Amy and th there's some debate. It seems like we're right on the edge. We don't really know right now. But what she said that really stood out to me are two things. One is that it looks like the Pacific may be trending into this permanent La Nina-like phase. And that coupled with the warming world and you know more ocean heat content will likely not bring us lulls in the future like we've had in the past and may bring us stronger hurricanes or wetter hurricanes we don't know if there are going to be more or less of them that's up in the air but the stronger hurricanes more hurricanes generally active hurricane seasons seem to be the path ahead yeah well the question of this cycle that that you know, for most of our time, <laughs> we've thought existed and we were convinced existed because you can look at the records of the 20th century. Although I must say, I've always been a little bit dubious about the 19th century, in spite of the fact that Phil Klusbach, who's the guru of these things, has convinced themselves that there are have were the worst cycles then. But it it is pretty convincing that this idea of air pollution. Uh, squashed the storms by cooling the oceans in the uh, 70s and 80s. So what we probably have is both of those things happening at the same time, right? Yeah. But but perhaps the strength of the AMO, the Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation, is not what we thought it was, but there is some effect uh, that's related to the oceans and the Atlantic overturning circulation, which is this Gulf Stream to the uh, thermohaline thermo circulation that Dr. Gray talked about, that that has some effect, but that the, uh, but not having volcanoes, not having air pollution changing the composition of the atmosphere uh, may even have a bigger effect. So I think the bottom line is your point that we should not be sitting around waiting for the uh, number of hurricanes to decrease rapidly any, anytime soon. It, it kind of is what, what we're seeing is, is what we're going to get with some ups and downs uh, for a variety of uh, random reasons. And her, she said it succinctly of, we're not going to reproduce the atmosphere of the 90s. That's, that's right. done. You know, we, we have more greenhouse gases. We have less air pollution. That's just the way it is. Right. So um, I think that coupled with, you know, everything else that we said, paints the picture. 
Yeah, and then, you know, you never know when a volcano is going to come along. You can have a big volcano in uh, Indonesia that puts a tremendous amount of uh, tambora or Krakatoa kind of volcano in uh, Indonesia that puts a tremendous amount of debris in the air. Uh, and, uh, you know, that can make a period of suppressed activity by essentially cooling the planet for a period of time until all that mixes out. So uh, a lot of things are unknown. I wonder how long how long does that last from the volcanic activity? It seemed like I, I guessed from what she was saying, I inferred about three years, roughly three, maybe four years of suppressed possible hurricane activity mm -hmm. from, uh, you know, a volcanic eruption. Do you have any sense of that? Well, how, I think, it, yeah, I mean, it really depends, it depends on the strength of it. Remember, in when Tambora erupted in 1815, uh, that caused what was called the, the year without, year without summer. summer. In, in 1816, right, in the Northeast, uh, which is why how the Midwest got settled. People couldn't grow crops in New England. It snowed every month. And so they migrated to Ohio <laughs> and, you know, where the, the weather was uh, somewhat warmer and farmers could grow crops. So, you know, it was a, a life changing event. And and we don't know much about the hurricane seasons back then, but you can bet that that was an effect. On the other hand. And when Krakatoa went off in the 1880s, we had ultra busy hurricane seasons uh, in that same time frame. So uh, I don't know. I don't know anything about how this works. And maybe Krakatoa happened too close to the 1886 uh, hurricane season because 1886 was a gangbusters hurricane season. So it, it may take time for it to all spread out. And it hadn't spread out yet. After and 1887. 1887 yeah. was really active too. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's uh, it is. It's an it's an interesting thing. The other thing I thought was uh, that uh, Amy described the difference between a climate model and a weather model. I thought brilliantly, and uh, you know that's a discussion we can't have too much because of this criticism of climate science being well. You know, you got today's forecast wrong. How can you know what the weather is going to be like 50 years from now the idea that we're not trying to figure out what the weather is going to be like today 50 years from now we're trying to understand how the weather pattern is going to change and the overall effect of the weather on us is going to change in an average sense because uh, the average is going to change 50 years from now. sure and that's it sounds like based off just you know it sounds simple like the composition of the atmosphere, you can change the amount of greenhouse gases then, and that gives you those numbers. And it's, you know, they, they calculated the greenhouse, uh, the warming from greenhouse gases back in what, the 1800s. We've known this for a long time. So these, uh, these models for the climate, they seem pretty simple, but they tell something that's very, very important. Yeah, and they're becoming higher resolution and, and uh, better able now to simulate uh, the weather. So we're getting better information from them. All right, next week on the podcast, we're going to talk to Dr. Hal Needham. Hal is a storm surge specialist who's working on a project to better understand storm surge history and the threat for the entire hurricane zone from Texas through Florida and up the east coast of Maine. So we'll do a deep dive, so to speak, on storm surge, how it's measured, how well it can be predicted. That's coming up next week. So be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple or Android apps so you get notified when the new podcast is online. Or, of course, you can watch on Twitter or Facebook as well. Until then, for Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross. Stay safe, be well, get vaccinated if you haven't, and we'll see you here next week. <laughs>